Our gospel this morning is from the 10th chapter of St. Mark. Now, Jesus and his disciples throughout the gospel up until this point have been making their way to Jerusalem. So soon before they arrive and along the way, James and John, two of the disciples, sons of Zebedee, come forward to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they responded, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten other disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a, a fascinating story that you may have tracked this week, um, is from this past week about NFL coach John Gruden of the Las Vegas Raiders. Anybody read this story or heard a little bit about this story? Some of you, maybe. He was in the middle of a, a 10-year, $100 million contract. Let that sink in for a moment. 10 years, $100 million contract to coach the Las Vegas Raiders, but he was fired last week over some insensitive emails that he sent 10 years ago when he wasn't working for the organization. Emails that seem to suggest that, among other things, John Gruden thought more of himself than of anybody else, to which some responded, well, welcome to the NFL, (laughs) right? It's an interesting case because no matter what you think about the situation, it's clear that what we're dealing with is an issue of character, which thankfully is gaining a little bit more and more attention of late. And it reminded me of an analogy that we wrestled with a couple of years ago, just before um, COVID began, an analogy that is shared um, from the writings of a Jewish scholar named Joseph Soloveitchik, who wrote this little book in 1965 called Lonely Man of Faith. He was reflecting on the book of Genesis. He was offering some interpretation from, of the book of Genesis, in particular, the creation of humankind. And he said that there are two sides to every, to every human's nature. He calls them, and maybe you remember this, Adam 1 and Adam 2. We all have both within us, both Adam 1 and both Adam 2. Adam 1 is the career-oriented, success-oriented side of our nature, the part that wants to build, to create, to discover, to explore, to succeed. 
Adam, too, is the humble side of our nature that wants to embody certain moral qualities. Adam, one, wants to do good. Adam, two, not only wants to do good, but wants to be good. Adam, one, wants to conquer the world. Adam, two, wants to serve the world. Adam, two, uh, savors accomplishment. I mean, Adam, one, savors accomplishment. Adam, two, savors relationship. Adam's one motto is to succeed. Adam, Two's motto is to love. So Levitzek argues that these two sides of our nature are always at war against each other. Sometimes it's just a, a gentle sort of tug and pull. Sometimes it's an all-out battle within ourselves, whenever, especially whenever we have big decisions to make. But that would be true also of small decisions to make. It's a battle that's always going on within us consciously and subconsciously. The question our inner self is always asking, which lens will you look through um, in the decisions that you have to make in your daily journey through life, Adam 1 or the lens of Adam 2. What complicates things, of course, is that we live in a society that favors, well, which part of our nature? Adam 1, of course. Uh, that part of us that is most interested in success and the way that we define success, especially in the world, is, is through the lens of Adam 1, through accomplishments. Um, and which part of our nature is often neglected, would you say? Probably the lens or the, the nature of Adam too. That part of us that is willing to sacrifice success for the sake of relationship. Again, it's important to hear that both are necessary, but where will you find ultimate satisfaction? That's, that's sort of the question that we wrestle with, Adam 1 or Adam 2. It's an important question that we have to wrestle with on a daily basis and, with dealing, and when dealing with every major decision in life, which brings us to today's reading from Mark chapter 10. It's a story of two brothers, two disciples, James and John, who happen to be two of Jesus' very special disciples. First, a little bit of background about, about James and John. They clearly occupy a very special place in the heart of Jesus. In fact, they form the inner circle with Jesus alongside two other brothers, Peter and Andrew. A few things that we know about James and John, they are among the first to be selected as disciples. They're present with Jesus and with Peter at the Transfiguration. Jesus knew their father, Zebedee, now, only they were present when Jesus raised that, that dead child to life. And best of all, John is given the very special privilege of caring for Jesus' mother after the crucifixion. Um, so, again, very special relationship with James and with John, perhaps part of an inner sort of circle of relationship alongside Andrew and Peter. So, verse 35, the beginning of this, of this reading, James and John are walking with Jesus and the other disciples um, on their way to Jerusalem. Again, they've been making their way towards Jerusalem throughout the gospel, and so they've almost arrived, and, and they pull Jesus aside and they ask, will you promise to do whatever we ask of you? <laughs> do you remember when you asked your mom or dad that question when you were what? seven or something, right? We would ask that kind of question. Now, before you answer, do you promise, wait, go ahead and make a promise <laughs> to do whatever I ask of you. And, and of course, usually the response was something like, be careful what you ask for. But Jesus says simply, well, tell me what you have in mind. Let me know what you're thinking. And James says, well, when you come into your glory, grant that one of us can sit at your right and the other can sit at your left. 
which sounds a little confident to me, maybe a little bit cocky, maybe, maybe James is filled with a little bit too much hubris that day, I don't know, but I guess you'll never get something if you don't ask it, so at least we can give that to him, right? He asked the question, so let's unpack it. They preface the question with this, when you come into your glory, which also could be read, when you come into your kingdom. And sure enough, Jesus had been talking a lot about kingdom lately. You remember some of those phrases, very familiar to us um, in our Christian journey, that the kingdom of God has come near. Those are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel. That we are to seek first, what? The kingdom of God. And that blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Yeah. So, what's this kingdom of God? Well, we might have a little bit of a, a, a picture, at least maybe a clearer picture than these disciples, because they're still early in their relationship with Jesus. Yes, they've been walking alongside Him. They've been taught by Jesus very carefully along the way, and yet they're still early in that relationship, that understanding of who Jesus is and, and what it is that He's trying to get them to understand and to know. For example, their only reference up to this point to a kingdom had to do with thrones and servants and feasts and goblets, sort of like Herod's kingdom. You remember Herod, right? Herod, who ruled over Palestine from his palace in Jerusalem. And sure enough, they're on their way to Jerusalem, right? We know that. That's the journey. Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem for a very particular reason. And, and we know that some of his followers, the zealots in particular, we know that they were pushing for Jesus to overthrow Herod, the king, and, and reestablish a Jewish kingdom, the, the kingdom of David. So maybe, just maybe, they were thinking, hey, when you do that, when you say, for example, conquer Jerusalem and you take over the throne of Herod, can we sit at your right? Can we sit at your left? What do you think? But what does it mean? to sit at your right and left. What's the big deal? I mean, my first thought, I don't know about yours, but my first thought is that it's interpreted sort of as a place of, of honor, you know. Uh, that's what Adam one would be most concerned about, after all, the place of honor, the place of recognition, so that everybody knows that, you know, you're special, that you're just a little bit better than the next guy, and maybe that was their motivation. And yet, listen to Jesus' response. Um, can you drink the cup? I mean, can you drink the cup that I, that I drink, he asks, which is an odd question. But it does make me think that maybe they were approaching all of this from a, a different perspective. Because in those days, especially James and John, who, whose father was Zebedee, a man of influence and probably of, of great wealth in that community, many folks, but especially folks from families like that would have known the role, the protocols of, of, of the man who sat literally at the right hand of the king or of, of any person of great influence. He was the cup bearer. Have you heard that phrase before? The man who sat at the right hand of the king was always the cup bearer, and his only job was to be the first to drink from the king's goblet, whether it was the finest wine or the deadliest poison. That was his job which makes Jesus' question very interesting. Are you sure? Think about this for a moment. Are you sure that you can drink the cup that I drink? Because within the answer to that question, 
lies the inner struggle of us all. They quickly say, yes, absolutely we can. With pride, maybe, who knows, but do they really understand what he's asking? And more importantly, what's their motivation? Let me think about it. It, Are they interested in, in drinking only a cup of honor? That would be Adam 1. Or are they willing to to drink a cup of humility, that would be Adam too. Are they only wanting to sit in positions of power and influence, Adam one, or will they also occupy the seat of service and compassion, Adam two? Is there motivation to be known by the world as the cupbearer of the king, or is there ultimate desire for the world to know the power of God's love and grace and mercy? Please understand, Joseph Soloveitchik says that both are needed in this world, both Adam 1 and both Adam 2. The important question is, what is your primary motivation? Which lens do you look through more than any other? In your leadership, in the decisions you make, both big and small, in your interactions with family, colleagues, school, community, church, what is your primary motivation? Because Jesus says, just in case you're wondering, whoever wants to be great must first be a servant. And among us, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. D.L. Moody was sort of a a classic figure from the 19th century. Some would claim that he was uh, probably the most important evangelist in the world, at least up until the late 1800s. People came from far and wide to hear him, literally came from around the world to attend uh, what became some very, very famous Bible conferences that he held in Northfield, Massachusetts. Well, one, gr- one year, a, group of, um, of, uh, a large group of pastors from Europe were among the attendees, and they were given rooms in the school's dormitories um, th- for the week of the conference. At the end of each day, as, as was a custom in Europe, it's just what they assumed was the case here too, the men put their shoes outside the doors of their rooms, expecting them to be cleaned and polished um, by servants during the night. Of course, there were no servants in these American dormitories, but as D.L. Moody was walking up and down the halls, as was his custom, to pray at night after the lights were out and after everyone else was in bed and was praying for each of the occupants within that dormitory, he noticed the shoes and he realized what had happened. And without another word, the great evangelist gathered up all of those shoes and he took them back to his own room where he began to clean and polish each and every pair every night, every night of the week. No one knew it until one of Moody's friends walked into his room late one night and saw dozens of pairs of shoes surrounding his desk, Moody carefully cleaning and polishing each one. Quietly, without saying a word, he pulled up a chair and began doing the same. It's an interesting sort of final comment that Jesus makes just before they arrive to that ultimate destination, Jerusalem. This is the final statement that he makes to these disciples and to us. Whoever wants to be great, truly great, must first be a servant 
in that way, and in that way only, will you bless this world in more ways than you or they will ever know. Amen.